Good morning, everybody. My name is Cajun Joe, and I am an alcoholic. And Frank, I must say that they trained you very well in California. You did a terrific job. I, uh, I know that I speak loud enough. Uh, maybe some of y'all would not, maybe doesn't understand me, but that's going to be your problem. So what you can do, you can buy my tape and play it backwards, <laughs> and you'll find out uh, what I said. We, um, I sure have enjoyed the uh, the two speakers uh, tonight, last night. I think they did a terrific job on their uh, story of how they recovered in Alcoholic Anonymous. And I'm looking forward to, to listen to some of the... Uh, speakers, uh, the rest of the speakers at the end of this uh, convention, and uh, especially the al -Anon. I always did love to hear al stories. And I heard an al once, and uh, she was up from North Louisiana, and, uh, Northern State, not Louisiana. And uh, she said this, and it was a profound statement. It stayed with me for all these years. And she said this. She said, if you love someone... Set him free. If he doesn't come back, it wasn't meant to be. And I thought, like uh, we said today, that's pretty cool. And, uh, but she didn't know that I was married to a Cajun woman. And these Cajun women, uh, Al and I and Cajun women from where I live, they said almost like she said, but they said this way. If you love someone, set him free. If he doesn't come back, go hunt and kill the son of a bitch. <laughs> And at, at this time, I would like uh, to uh, introduce uh, my wife, uh, Boogie. Would you please uh, rise, please? Uh, I, like they say, I, I am Boogie's husband, so no problem there. Uh, you know, this is a gratitude roundup, and I don't know of any... Uh, more apropos time to have a convention than during the Thanksgiving holidays because I, I have a lot to be grateful for. I, just the fact that I am an American. Uh, America, what a country, you know. And uh, especially uh, these days uh, as what's going on in the United States. But uh, not only being grateful, uh, I'm grateful for my life and I'm grateful for my wife. Because if it wouldn't be for Alcoholic Anonymous, I wouldn't have a, a life. And if it wouldn't be for God's grace, and I wouldn't have a, a wife, but for the grace of God and Alcoholic Anonymous. And especially the life that I live within the last 29 years that I am sober. It's amazing to me how I can stand here and share these things with you. And the fact that we've been married, my wife and I have been married now for 49 years. I have a lot to be grateful for. And you know, my wife is a diabetic, and every morning, she's been a diabetic for over 40 years, and she takes insulin, she takes a shot every morning. And this morning, being home, being here, I gave her her shot for her to survive. And for me to survive, I didn't take a shot. <laughs> um, you know, being, 
being a Cajun, my father and my father was born in Cajun country, which he was in a Cajun. He was, he was German, but it all comes from my mother's side. With a name like Blanche Dantin, what else do you want? <laughs> and uh, being, I could give you a very good Cajun story this morning, a very clean Cajun story. And uh, because it's, uh, has, it actually has a message of Alcoholic Anonymous in it. And if you listen to it very carefully, because I heard Clancy say one time that uh, alcohol instantly alters your perception of reality. And being not too familiar when he said all that, I went to my famous Cajun dictionary, and all that tells me that alcohol changes my view and outlook of what is real and what is not real. So there is a very apropos story behind this. And, of course, no Cajun story without a Tijon Boudreau in it. So he's the main character in my story. And he drinks at Monsieur Fontino's saloon. And the barmaid, her name is Marie Thibodeau. Very good Cajun name. And Tijon is kind of, kind of angry this morning. And he walks in the same saloon. He sits at the same stool. And he orders his beer. He, he orders a beer. He drinks a beer. And then he looks in his pocket. And then he orders another beer, and he drinks his beer, and then he looks in his pocket. And after a few beers, uh, he's, getting, he's, getting, he's getting kind of drunk. You ever see the alcoholic smile? He starts to smile. You ever see the alcoholic smile when he's drunk? <laughs> it looks like he's constipated. <laughs> and Barry can't take that anymore. He says, Tijon, says, why do you look in your pocket like that? What is that? He says, oh, Marie, he says, that's the picture of my wife. When she's going to start looking good, I'm going to go home. <laughs> well, that's what happened to Tijon. Now, let me tell you a true story of what happened to me. One, one time, as far as alcohol alters your perception of reality. You know, it's Mardi Gras time in our area. And a uh, good time. Mardi Gras in French is Fat Tuesday. And everybody goes a lot of good times. And I went to fishing and coming back from fishing, instead of going home, I went honky-tonk. And uh, I sat at the bar and I had just one beer at that time. And when this, there was a person coming towards me. And the, it was mass and a costume on. But I saw that it was very well built. I assumed that it was a woman. <laughs> But nowadays, you, you can't tell, you know. <laughs> so what you got to do is feel your way around. <laughs> but she came up to me and she says, uh, would you like to dance? I says, yeah, I'd like to. And we went dancing and uh, I was shy. I had only one beer. And she disappeared. And about uh, two or three hours later, she came back. And she came up to me and whispered in my ear. She says, would you like to go somewhere else? And I said, yes, let's go somewhere else. I didn't give a damn then. So we left and we got in the car and I said, well, this is Mardi Gras time and you got a mask on. I said, why don't you take it off so I can see your beautiful face. And she did and it was my wife. <laughs> oh, you can say that again. <laughs> a true story. Every time Mardi Gras comes along, I get the shakes. <laughs> Sober. <laughs> All right. So, 
on a serious basis, you know, uh, when they have, uh, I have a special, uh, I, like, uh, big, I like Big Book Alcoholic Anonymous, and everyone has a special reading, I'm sure, yeah, your favorite reading. And I have one in which I would like to share with you. But before I do, you know, when we first came, when I first came to Alcoholic Anonymous, and the speaker would come to the podium, and he would quote the big book, I thought he was a smart aleck. And then when he would quote you the page number, I knew he was a smart ass. <laughs> I'd like to tell you it's on page 30. The sixth line to the top. It says that the idea that somehow, someday we will control and enjoy our drinking is a great obsession of every abnormal drinker. The persistence of this illusion is astonishing. Many pursuing the gate of death are insanity. And that's one of my favorite readings, because I always did believe that uh, I had this obsession that I could control my drinking and really enjoy myself. You know, when you take a, what do you call this? I call it a galleon. I don't have the slightest idea. Okay. Let's say that I would be, I don't know where I'm going with this, but let's, <laughs> let's say that I would be a captain on this ship. They need uh, the need in the Santa Maria, whatever they call it in those days. And I would be the captain on their ship, and I would plot a course. And at the end of the course of my destination, that it had been death or insanity, it doesn't give me much of a choice. And this is where I was heading. But thank God that they have the captain. I was able to turn the ship around, and I made a 180-degree turn, and I came into the triangle of Alcoholic Anonymous, in which this ship is, ship is going to. So it was just an obsession. It was an illusion that I had that I could control this drinking and enjoy life. But when you put whiskey in your coffee to take the shakes out to go to work, it's not fun anymore. And I'll tell you what happened to me one time about going to a party. It was during a, I call it a period of transition. I had gone to a meeting in 1970, and I didn't sober up to 1971. And I had gone, and the people of the the personnel I worked for knew that I had gone to a meeting and we had a big party and my company was laying, doing pioneer work in the North Sea, laying pipelines with a company called Brahman Root. And it was a big party and they gave, they gave, they had steaks and I ate a good steak and I didn't want to drink at this party so I went to another place and I was with a friend of mine and he ordered a, he ordered a, a vodka and orange juice. I have never drank vodka and orange juice. And he said, why don't you try one? And I did. And I enjoyed it. I drank all night. I didn't get drunk. Boogie never knew that when I got home around 4 o'clock in the morning. Boogie didn't even know that I had drank that night. And I felt wonderful. And I knew definitely that the, the meeting that I had made in 1970, that Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob didn't know anything of what was going on in Alcoholic Anonymous because I had the magic formula. All you had to do was eat a steak and drink vodka and orange juice and everything would be all right. And I believed it. It was an illusion and it was true. It was true. There's, nobody could have changed my mind. So, man, I said, oh, God, I'll have it made. So I planned, what did a drunk do? He plans another drunk. And I was, there was a vessel of about 35 miles from where I live, and I had to go, to, I told Boogie I had to make a delivery, which was not true, 
and they had a big party. They had uh, this was rodeo time, fishing rodeo. And I went in this place and I drank about two. I, I ate a big steak before going. And I, ate, I drank two vodka and, and orange juice, two or three of them. And I went looney toony. Unbelievable. I had a fight, almost a fight with two people at the table. The bartender called the cops. The cop came to pick me up to put me in jail. And then I says, again, a total defeat. Bill in his story says, alcohol was my master. And this is where I've really realized in my life that alcohol was my master. That it was just an illusion, an obsession to think that I could drink. Once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. So, where am I? You know, I always take a sip. It's not because I'm thirsty. It's because I don't remember what I had to say next. <laughs> yep, I just remembered. <laughs> At this time, I would like to thank the committee or anybody else who is responsible for me being here tonight. I want to thank Frank for his hospitality. I want to thank the, the person in charge of the fruit basket that I had in my room. And I've been doing this for quite a few years, what I'm doing here. And I must say and that the Alanine, the first time I ever go to convention, and the Alanine gives me a gift. <laughs> so I thought it was very nice. I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart, because I do believe great, I'm of great belief in the program of Alanine. I sure is. I want to thank you again. But, you know... Um, being uh, really grateful for all of this, I'd like to say that, uh, where am I? Okay. I worked for a tugboat company. And if I was to utilize, if I was to utilize a piece of equipment or a tugboat company to symbolize hope in Alcoholic Anonymous, I would use the ship's anchor. And the reason I say the ship's anchor, because we use these anchors on these ships to protect the ship from going aground, to be safe and protected against like going against the rocks. And this is why I would use the ship's anchor as a symbol of hope in Alcoholic Anonymous because I want my program to be solid and safe but like going against the rocks. Again, my, not against the rock because I drank scotch on the rocks. And I want my, my program to be safe. And you know, hope is a four-letter word that I acquired in Alcoholic Anonymous. And it means... H-O-P-E, hear other people's experiences. And I do believe that people can stay sober in Alcoholic Anonymous by hearing other people's experiences. But you know, this, this really happened a few years ago. I was, uh, I was in my living room, and I was looking at TV, and uh, President Bush came on TV. Not the one that counting the votes in Florida, the, the first one. President Bush came on TV, and he said... He was telling us to a million people in this world that uh, he had gone to the shipyard in, in Poland and upon entering the shipyard, they had three gates, three gates, and in each gate was a cross. And in each cross was an anchor embedded in the cross. And he was told that these anchors was a symbol of hope. And man, when he said that, I jumped up, my, my Cajun mannerism, I jumped up and I said, boogie, boogie, boogie. I said, did you hear what President Bush said? That these anchors was a symbol of hope? And I mean to tell you, in awe, 
in all of her alanine wisdom, she says, Joe, he says, he most probably heard your tape. <laughs> and he just want to pass it on. You know, if it would have, you know, I hear, I hear in Alcoholic Anonymous what alcohol does to different people, for them and to them. When I drank alcohol, one of the most unusual things that happened, I felt, I, I, I visualized myself, I, thought, I call it a visual thought, I visualized myself as being a, a big old white oxen. You ever see these big old white oxen, they stand on four feet and they sway from side to side, and they're really focusing, and they have that big old ring in their nose. And matter of fact, if I was to introduce, and this is how I felt that I was the oxen, if I was to introduce myself and say, I'm Mr. Oxen and I'm an alcoholic. And then this puny kid comes around, he's about 50, he weighs about 50 pounds, uh, I call him Jack Daniel's grandson, you know, kid alcohol. He's the alcohol, kid alcohol. And this kid comes up to me, and I weigh 2,000 pounds, and he puts his little finger in the ring of the nose of this oxen, and he carries him all around, all around. This kid is in complete control of this oxen, which is me. And this is part of my life. Alcohol dominated my life. It made me do what I wanted not wanted to do, and it made me do things that I I I done them, and I uh, there's no regret from the past. But uh, I can use them for for experiences or helping other people. But you know, today I don't mind being led by the nose, especially if it's the spirit of the fellowship of the uh, or the spirit of the universe, the, the divine principles of a of AA. I don't mind being led by the nose, especially if it had been by, by my sponsor. My sponsor, who's, who, who twice stepped me for the first time in a hospital when I was in a hospital for alcoholism. And he came and he talked to me about his drinking. And he, he came to AA in 1947 and he died in 1977. I'll be eternally grateful for Mr. Frank. Because I, I really believe today that this is the man, the God, the man that God sent to me for my sobriety. This is why I'll be eternally grateful for that man. He was very kind. He didn't point his finger at me, and he didn't spank my hand. He knew exactly how sick I was. That I was suffering from an insidious disease, a very bad disease, and it was chronic. It's there for life. It will always be there for me. And he knew how sick I was and he could take care of me. He loved me tremendously. A total stranger. A total stranger. A person I never met in my life before. It was unbelievable how this man was so kind. And he says, Joe, he says, if you do what you ought to do in Alcoholic Anonymous, you can survive. If you do what you want to do in Alcoholic Anonymous, you will not survive. And later on, and later on, I remember those statements he said, if you do what you ought to do, you can survive. 
If you do what you want to do, you will not survive. And this is where I came up with I, the thing that I wasn't doing, that I would suffer in Alcoholic Anonymous. If I didn't get to work and work the steps of Alcoholic Anonymous, that I would, I would, I would suffer from what I call the case of the Jeffs, J-E-F-F, jealousy, envy, fear, and frustration. And that if I didn't do all these things, that I would, I would have another case. I would have a case of the Reds, R-I-D. I would be restless, irritable, and discontented. So I had to get rid of the reeds when I came to Alcoholic Anonymous. I didn't sober up at that time when he came to the hospital. But I will ne- it, stayed, it stayed with me for, for that time until I came back to the AA for the second time. You know, if it, had been, if, it, if it would have taken an early drunk that would have been the single cause of my alcoholism, or if it had been the environment in which I lived in, would have been the single cause to my alcoholism, or if it had been the genes from my family that would have been the single cause to my alcoholism, I say that I qualify in all three. But I, I believe today that there is more than one single cause to alcoholism. Matter of fact, I do believe today that they do not know what causes the cause of alcoholism. But... The very first time I drank, I was five years old, and I got drunk, and I got drunk on wine. It's not that it was a big deal for a kid to get drunk at the age of five, but I remember one thing. I didn't drink well, and I didn't stop after the first glass of wine. And it was a pattern of my life, all of my life, until I came to Alcoholic Anonymous. And if I was to inherit alcoholism, I am one of the many branches of a large family tree, a large family drinking tree with alcoholic roots. And what I believe happened to me one day, that the master gardener came and he cut my branch. And instead of falling on the wayside like many of my relatives who died of alcoholism, I fell in the hand of AA. In which you pruned me, you worked around me, you gave me all the spiritual tools necessary for me to recover. And I will say that you did a terrific job. Because you used the right fertilizer. You know our big book says that we were... We were replanted. We were reborn. I was replanted because I think you did a terrific job because I can go to a meeting today in Alcoholic Anonymous and hear so much crap, it's unbelievable what I can hear at a meeting. So, if it was the environment in which I lived in, it would have been a single cause to my alcoholism. I worked in the saloon. I was 10 years old. I was rocking pool tables. I was a bartender at the age of 12. And he said, come on, Joe, 12 years old. Yes, I was promoted to the bar at the age of 12. I hadn't even gone to law school yet. <laughs> you know. But you see, what happened in those days is that the sheriff of the parish would deputize the owner of the place. And the owner of the place could do anything he wanted where we lived way down the Bayou country. And the owner of the place was my father. So I could do anything I wanted in that area. I could walk into a saloon at the age of 14 and order Coke and water, the Coke and whiskey. And I did that one day. And I, I was with a Marine. And I walked into this saloon and there was this nice lady. The bar, she was the, they owned the place. And I said, I want a, a whiskey and Coke. And she says, aren't you young to be drinking? I had a cigarette in my mouth. And that infuriated me. It embarrassed me for her because I was with this Marine. And I said, I will revenge for what she did. 
and it took me seven years to revenge for the embarrassment that that woman caused me. I married her only daughter. <laughs> Got my revenge. You know, I was, I was a sentimental institution. Thirteen years before I came to Alcoholic Anonymous, because they thought I was crazy. It was because of fears. Fear, if you were to ask me what are the two worst things, emotions that I went through in alcoholic, during these times was fears and loneliness. A big book says loneliness as few will ever know. You know, I did from country club drinking to the most sorted place down our area. And they, would, they wanted to close these saloons. I didn't want to leave. Instead of calling the sheriff to come and pick me up, they would call my wife to come and pick me up. And I, when she came that one night, I was sitting at the other. I was the only person in the place. And I was sitting at the end of that bar. And I had every, everything to live for. And when she saw me where I was, she said that she saw the most devastated person that she ever seen in her life. That it was unbelievable where alcoholism was bringing me. I had a trench coat on and covered over my ears. And I felt the most lonesome person in the world. I felt that nobody loved me, nobody cared for me. And this is the life that our disease of alcoholism, especially... The worst part, I believe, for me, was my spiritual illness of alcoholism, besides the mental and the physical part that I had. But fears, because I used to live, I used to hide in my closet. Fears of maybe somebody would come to harm us. I used to sleep in my living room with a loaded shotgun, thinking that people were going to harm us. Nobody wanted to harm us. So they knew there was something wrong with poor T. Joe. So they wanted to send him to a mental institution. And they brought me there that morning. And I was sober. I met the psychiatrist in the middle of the hallway. And he says, You don't look as bad as I was told from your doctor that you are. Of course not. I was sober. You know, you can go on a bend, you can get drunk, and the next day you don't feel all that great, but I'm not ready for the graveyard. And he says, why don't we come and we'll talk? And we had two sessions. And I could visualize where I was going. I had seen it on TV. That I had, it was a padded cell with a knob on the outside only. And I would, they would put me, they had bars in the windows. And I said, I don't belong here. What am I doing here? And they brought me there. And after two sessions, he says, son, It's 11 o'clock. <laughs> I'm legally blind, and I have a talking watch. And then my son said he's going to buy me a hearing aid so I can hear it. <laughs> All right. I got two more hours to go then. <laughs> Should I take a sip? No, I remember <laughs> and because of the fear and after he says son he said you can go home and this is the magic word for me go home 
You see, there's so many scars that remain in my family, myself and my immediate family, for the ignorance of alcoholism in these days. Nobody knew what was my problem. Nobody knew. And I came home, and for 13 more years I drank. And Bill in his story said that our mind and body is a marvelous mechanism that we can endure such pain and suffering. And for 13 years I did it again until I came to Alcoholic Anonymous for, this, for the last time. But let me go on and say that I'm a Korean veteran. I fought like hell, but they drafted me anyway. <laughs> and I would say that the best thing that ever happened to me during the Korean War that Boogie and I married during the Korean War. And I had, we, we were married. I stayed home. We stayed together for nine days. I went to Korea, North Korea. I'm not here to tell you our stories, but I was there at the beak of the, when it was the heat part of the battles in Korea, North Korea, all the time. The most miserable country I've ever been in my life. And here I had a beautiful bride home. What am I doing here, my God? You know? And so they gave, when I came back, a year later, they gave me a 30 day leave. And boy, this was terrific, you know what I mean? I don't have to go into detail, right? <laughs> so here we are, and then after 30 days, I says, honey, I said, I gotta go. I says, uh, I gotta go back to basic, I gotta go back to camp. And he said, well, why don't you stay? I says, I can't. I said, I'm gonna go AWOL. And if I go AWOL, after what I'd leave, I said, they're gonna put me in the stockade, and I had worked 18 months for one stripe, I had one stripe, and I said, they're going to take my stripe away, you know. And she, this is what I heard her say. She didn't say this. But, and we weren't in Al-Anon A at all. We didn't know they had such a program. But I heard her say, if you want what I have. <laughs> so I went AWOL, and it's not my fault, it's her fault. Let me bring you to 1969, since we've got plenty of time. <laughs> in 1969, I went to a retreat. I loved retreats. I'm a devoted Catholic. I loved, I loved these retreats. It was done by Jesuit priests. And it was at Manresa. It was a silent retreat. Just uh, me. No, uh, no, just a bunch of, about a hundred men. And I've been going there for about already 15 consecutive years. And the reason I went to Manresa is because it was a tremendous rest for my body. Boogie said that I would leave with a fifth of scotch in my suitcase. That's what she said. And I got to believe her. And uh, I would go to the retreat, and I would really enjoy the retreat. And I was beginning to, to uh, be interested in what the Jesuit priest was talking about, God's creation. And this being a silent retreat, the purpose of the silent retreat was that you could listen to God speak to you. And I was interested in listening to God to speak to me. As a matter of fact, one of the retreat masters says, go up in that oak tree, and if you don't see God, he says, you mad. Well, I didn't know what he meant then, but I know what he means today. That God is the creator of all, and I should see God in an oak tree. Okay? So, 
as the retreat started, on uh, the night before they started, I walked into a room, the library, and they had thousands of books, and they had chairs around. And on one of the chairs, they had a little green pamphlet. And it, the title was, 13 Step to Alcoholism, Which Step Are You On? And the reason they had 13 steps was that they had 12 questions. If you answered the question that would put your drinking in, it was about drinking, and if your drinking was in trouble, the 13th step was either you get outside help or down you go. So I picked up the pamphlet and I read the 12 questions. And out of a possible score of 100, I scored 125. <laughs> I knew definitely that I was an alcoholic. It had to have been God's grace that I knew definitely that I was an alcoholic by reading this pamphlet. And if I could go into detail of my lifestyle all of my life, that I never knew that alcohol was, was had any, that alcohol was a, but I didn't know anything about alcoholism, excuse me, and I found out that I was an alcoholic. Now listen to this. He says, men, he says, if anybody here has a problem, he says, I would like for you to write a letter to God. Tell him about your problem. Put it in the form of a prayer or petition, and God will answer your letter in his own time and his own way. Well, I heard of kids writing letters to God here. I'm a macho Cajun. I mean, why should I be writing a letter to God? My pride was too great for that. But I, I, uh, I went to my room, and I said, Dear God, I don't know what these other guys wrote. They wrote letters too. I said, dear God, tell you how much I knew. I said, I put vice. The vice in my life is that I am an alcoholic. And if the forward progress is not arrested, I am to die the alcoholic death. But before that, I would lose my wife, my job, respect and self-respect. That was the first paragraph. The second paragraph, the God of my understanding, I can't separate what God is, my perception of what is God is, I said, Lord Jesus, help me. And in the third paragraph, I said, a very important part of this, significant part of that letter, the third paragraph, I said, in any field that would do the job, in any field that would do the job, I didn't ask for Alcoholic Anonymous. I didn't even know there was a program really, truthfully and honestly. In 1969, I didn't even know there was a program called Alcoholic Anonymous. And there was, there was a program, in, it was in the world, the United States, the state of Louisiana. There was a group that met 50 miles from where I live. So I turned in my letter and through the ritual of the church, and he said that we are, we are going to ask God to answer all of these letters in his own time and in his own way. And I came back. And I stayed sober for three months without taking a drink. Now, later on in life, later on in my sobriety, as I was reviewing and studying my letter, I still have it in my possession. I had three paragraphs on that. And as I came to AA and I I listened to the steps of Alcoholic Anonymous, I came up with this conclusion. That... The first paragraph where I said that I was an alcoholic, 
the first paragraph, and my life was unmanageable, the first paragraph says that what I said was that uh, the vice in my life is that I'm an alcoholic, and then, my, and then I would lose my respect, self-respect, and so on and so forth. The first step tells me to admit that I'm powerless of alcohol and my life is unmanageable. The second step that we have came to believe in a power greater than yourself could restore you to sanity. I asked God for help, to God of my understanding. I don't know of any most sincere cry. And in the third paragraph, which I said, in any field that would do the job, the third step tells me that I made a decision to turn my will in my life. I had no concept of understanding there would be such a program called Alcoholic Anonymous. Now, I'm a firm believer that God answered my letter in 1969, and I'll bring that to my grave. I'll bring it to my grave. Now, he didn't return it on a, on a wing of an angel or a jet plane. He sent a Cajun coon out in the paddle piro because it took him two years to get the letter back. It took him two years. And as I, uh, and after being sober for three months, I, I went back to drinking. And uh, this is where uh, I was in, in AA, where I went to the hospital for the first time. And going to the hospital for the first time, and then I went to my first AA meeting in 1970. I went to my first AA meeting. And I, uh, I, I came to this meeting. They were very nice people. There were a lot of Cajuns. And they were very friendly. And they welcomed me. And uh, one guy got up and he told his story. His name was Ed. And he said that he comes to, he says, I've been sober about 20 years, and he says, I come to Alcoholic Anonymous to remind myself that I am an alcoholic. Now, if you knew here, like I was new that first meeting in Alcoholic Anonymous, and you hear a speaker say that he's been in A for 20 years, and he has to come here every week to remind himself that he's an alcoholic, my thinking says this guy must be a dumb ass. <laughs> and then they had two guys in the corner speaking and I could hear what they weren't saying that I had to get up at this podium to say tell my story of what the thing that I had done before I came to the meeting of AA like an open confession he didn't say that but this is what I heard this is the fear that I had because my wife me like an open confession my wife was sitting on the first row I wasn't uh, I was in hot, enough hot water already I wasn't about to open up the wrong faucet and I made that profound statement I said I will never ever come back to Alcoholic Anonymous and I didn't come back to 365 days later and within the 365 days this is where the progressives of the disease really came on more and more hallucination and DTs the DTs, I still shiver today when I think of the horrors of the DTs to the alcoholic. It's amazing how much we suffered before we ever came to Alcoholic Anonymous. 
it's amazing to see today so many people sober who are suffering in Alcoholic Anonymous. Alcohol, I found out that alcohol is not my problem. Alcoholism is my problem. And this is what I had to work on. But coming within the 365 days, the progressives of it, and I went on a fishing trip one time. It was on a beautiful yacht. And when I came back on Sunday, Boogie had gone to church to Mass. And when I was sitting by my kitchen table, I was drunk. And she looked at me and she said, My God. But that infuriated me. Not because she said, My God. It was because of my guilt and my shame. I had a lot of problem with my shame because some, a lot of times shame comes with sexual activities. And I had a lot of problem with that stuff. But thank God it's all removed. And so when she said, my God, I went for her throat. And in all the years of marriage, I had never once laid my hands on that woman. But I was drunk. And I was stopped. And I fell on my knees and I can remember what I said. I said, if God has created a man, has turned himself into an animal. And I said, what do you do with an animal? I said, you get rid of it. And I left the house for whatever I was going to do. And then I had a son there. And he came up to me and said, Dad, he says, we love you. He says, we want to take care of you. He says, come in. He said, we'll take care of you. Instead of the son bringing, the father bringing the son to bed, the son brought the father to bed. What a tremendous act of love that he had for me at that particular time because what I was, he thinking what I was going to harm his mother. And when I woke up the next morning, I said, Boogie, I said, I'm going to DDT's again. I said, I can't take them anymore. I said, bring me to the hospital. And I went to the hospital that day, never, ever, to get drunk again. What grace, what love, from what I was experiencing all these years, and I wake up one morning, Never, ever to drink again. Never, ever to get drunk. And what I did, I was in the hospital. I called Alcoholic Anonymous. I called Mr. Frank. And Mr. Frank came and see me. And he told me the same story over again. He used the example of the pickle. He said, you take a pickle, you put it in a jar with vinegar, it becomes a, a cucumber. He said, you take a cucumber, you put a pickle in the jar, with vinegar, it becomes a cucumber. A pickle, pardon me, I'll get it straight after a while. <laughs> I might eat the son of a gun if it was there. And he was giving me an example that once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. And he said, what's good for bottled intoxication was God's intoxication. And I used to repeat these words. The only thing I added was, what's good for bottled intoxication is God's intoxication and alcoholic anonymous. And I said, Mr. Frank, I says, will you come back to the meeting? I said, Mr. Frank, I will go back to the meeting. You see, I really felt that I was hopeless. Really hopeless. AA has the hope for all the hopeless. AA has the hope for all the, all the drunks in the world. And I really think that I was hopeless. And he gave me tremendous hope. He said, Joyce, if you come to Alcoholic Anonymous, 
and do what you ought to do. He says, you can survive. You can survive. You can live a life that is unbelievable. I hear many speakers say, and I'll say it myself. The day that I sobered up, you gave me a pencil the first day I came to A, and you said, put on the paper what you expect out of this program. How short could I set myself up from all the blessing and the grace and the love and all the beautiful things of life that I have received in Alcoholic Anonymous once I started to work the program. The fellowship is tremendous. It's good fellowship. But I'm a firm believer that to be where we are today, to a point where we can become the program has to be worked. The power in the steps of Alcoholic Anonymous are unbelievable for me. And he gave me tremendous hope. And our big book said that we were 100% hopeless. 100% hopeless. And it said the magic word, apart from divine help. Apart from divine help. So I went to the meeting. And I started going to the meeting. I tried, we had to travel 50 miles, 100 miles round trip to go to Alcoholic Anonymous, from where I live, to the closest place. And they had one meeting a week, that's all. One meeting a week. I, I wasn't doing anything but sitting at this table, at these chairs, not working in any, any program, you know, not working. I believe that, you know, just me coming to this meeting and sit in the first row on the first seat will no more cure my alcoholism than me sitting in the garage is going to make me an automobile. <laughs> Working the steps of Alcoholic Anonymous will take care of all that. So I came to AA and regardless of how things were going, do you ever feel that you had this emptiness, this, this hole in your guts? I had a hole in my gut for years and years and years. It always was an emptiness, regardless of what I received. It would never fill it up. Alcohol used to fill this hole, this good that I had. But that was just a temporary job. It wasn't a permanent job. Alcoholic Anonymous is the permanent job, one day at a time, that filled up my holes. Today, my hole is filled up, A1. And I felt bad. I wasn't, I was miserably sober in alcohol. And it only lasted two months. Oh, thank God it only lasted two months. And this guy came to, come to our house. He says, I happen to be in a neighborhood. He lived 50 miles from where I live. He says, I happen to be in a neighborhood. He says, I'm going to what they call Joey, Joe. He says, a Cosillo. It's a short, it's a, it's a spiritual weekend. Very motivating weekend. They're running around like chicken with the neck cut off. And if you've ever been to Casilla de Colores, okay, you know what I'm saying. De Colores is a Spanish word. It says all in colors. And I said, Bob, he said, the guy that I'm supposed to pick up to bring to this Casilla is not available. Will you come and replace him? I said, Bobby, I said, I don't care. Where are you going? I mean, I've been in Alcoholic Anonymous for two months now. The walls are crawling in, and the one thing I know about Alcoholic Anonymous is if I, for me to drink is to die, and I don't want to die. I said, I'll go with you anywhere as you go. 
And I went to this casino. And when I saw what I got involved in, I wanted to leave. But I couldn't because I was 150, maybe less than 200 miles from where I lived, and they had dumped me there. They didn't let me use my car. Okay, they knew what I was getting into. They said that there was a raging Cajun coming this weekend. They were prepared for me. And it has nothing to do with Alcoholic Anonymous. And then tried, and they were nice to me. They, were, they had a team of lay people, and they had, uh, I found out later, they had members of AA in that group. And then Friday night, uh, there's a little guy that comes to the port in well dressed, all sharp looking, you know, good looking guy. And he says, Man, he said, I'm going to give you a, a talk on piety. Oh my God. When he said piety, I didn't know what a pious person was. I didn't know what piety meant, the definition. And he said, then he said what he had to say about piety. He pulled his book and he said, My name is Jim Sergi. He says, I am a member of Alcoholic Anonymous. And he says, I would like to tell you about God's goodness in my life and what Alcoholic Anonymous has done for me. And when he said that, man, I stood up in attention. I wanted to hear what this guy had to say. I had a sponsor for two months, but he lived 50 miles from where I live, and you sober up, you tighten up. I didn't call him. And, but we, we communicated. I had talked to my sponsor some. But this is a guy that had a total stranger. And he, he says, Joe, he, we got together in a one-in-one. And he says, you know, he says, Joe, he says, there seems to be something bothering you. And he told me his story. I could never believe that an individual, a total stranger, would tell me what this guy told me about his life. And I had never met the guy before. He was a member of Alcoholic Anonymous. And I call him my little big old friend because he called me a kunas. And he says, Joey says, something, is, something seems to be bothering What Jim was doing with me, he was, he was making his fourth and fifth step with me. I didn't know that. You know, I didn't know that's what he was doing. And he said, why don't you examine your conscience? He didn't say write it down on paper, but he said, think of all the things that you have done. And he says, look at your character defects and shortcomings. And when he said character defects and shortcomings, I says, please, give me an explanation of that. If you want me to think about to tell somebody about it. And he says, you put it, you think about it and you give it to me. Well, you know, Jim was the type of guy he could come and hug you and kiss you. And I'm being a macho Cajun. Jim had a mannerism. I thought there was something wrong with Jim. You know? I said, you ain't gonna hug me, baby, you know? But that was how, that's how Jim was. And he says, if you don't want to give it to me, he said, why don't you go talk to that Catholic priest? He said, they usually don't tell. <laughs> he said, why don't you go and talk to him? And I did. And I went and talked to this priest and he, and he, uh, he said, Joey said, I'll forgive you. God forgive you. Then you got to forgive yourself. And I really believe I started to start this weekend with forgiveness. I know there was a tremendous change that came about. There was a personality change that happened. And our book says, on page 569, a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism has manifested itself in many different forms. And when Boogie saw me that weekend, she said, I don't know what happened, but something happened to you. Something happened to me. So, I came home, and again, like I was talking about this hole that I had, it reappeared, it came back. 
I still wasn't all satisfied with what was going on, you know, thinking that I could solve the world's problems. And then I went to a priest and I talked to him about it. He was in the program. He said, Joey, you got to pray, 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 pray. Things are going to be all right. Be patient. Take your time. Be patient. And then I had any prayers and I had what I call a, a visual thought. A visual thought is pops up in my head and I can actually uh, I see the whole picture like instant TV but it takes me a while to to reconstruct what I see and I, I put a title on it it was walking on a lonely road and I was walking on this lonely road it was a long straight road and it had loops and valleys in it hilly and on the edge of the Edge of this tree, edge of the road was green grass, and the edge of the green grass was tall, tall pine trees, tall, tall pine trees. And as I was walking, I sent there was somebody following me, but I didn't want to look to see who it was, and I knew that exactly who it was. I'll call him the Living God, and he came so close I could feel the, I could feel the very breath of his breathing in my neck, but I didn't want to turn around. So I ran away from him. I ran and I ran and I ran until I stopped dead in my tracks. And I did what they say in AA. I made a 180 degree turn. I made a decision. And I made a 180 degree turn and I walked towards him. And when we met, he says, all of, your, all of my life, all of your life I've been following you now. He says, come and follow me. You know? I thought it was a very unusual thought that I had. But it was good for me. It motivated me. It motivated me. A big book says that we feel that we are walking we feel that we are walking on a broad highway walking hand in hand with the spirit of the universe. Page 75. And I believe that this is what happened. Whatever it is, for whatever you, you accept it, this is, what, this is my story. But it changed me. It gave me a tremendous change. And I started to go back to... What I had to do was go back to AA. I mean, go more to AA. Go to different places. My sponsor was the type of a guy that he would speak at conventions and he would call me to go with him. And I needed to talk to him more. He brought me to my first convention in 1975, and in Minnesota, I, this was my sixth international. And it's only through the grace of God and, AA and the principles of AA that has happened to me. Because really and truthfully, when I was in the, when I was in the hospital the last day of August the 16th in 1971, and you were at, that God were at sitting right next to me, and you had said, Cajun, he says, one of these days you're going to go to an international conference in Minnesota. And he says, that 29 years from now you'll be in Minnesota and giving a 30-minute talk on practicing principles in all of your affairs. I would have said, God, I know you love me. I'm a Cajun. And I know that, and I know you, you know God is Cajun. You know that? <laughs> and I said, God, I says, I know you're Cajun, but I see you've gone way over your jurisdictions. I said, no way that this could ever happen. But, but for the grace of God and alcoholic announced it did. 
And he was the type of guy that used to bring people to the, um, go to the, bridge, to the jailhouse. He would get the prisoners out of jail and bring them to the meeting. I couldn't do that. But I used to go for three consecutive years. Every Tuesday night, I would travel that same distance that I didn't want to travel to go speak to the prisoners every Tuesday night for three years. And this is the kind of work that I got involved in. I love prison work, hospital work also. And after 18 months, he said, why don't you open a group? Why don't you open a group down where you live? He said, I'll help you. I'll get, uh, there was a doctor that called him, wanted to go to AA, and uh, this doctor didn't, uh, didn't want to travel that, that, that space because of his hospital work. He said, why don't you come and uh, we'll get together and we, we'll start a meeting. There was about four or five of us that started the meeting, and I had to persevere, one of the principles of AA. I persevered because there were times when I went to the meeting, there was myself and another person. But I stayed and... Today we are in very good shape, very good shape. So these are the things that happened to me as I, from the experience of, I call it a spiritual awakening, that motivated me and I wanted to do what was right and I wanted to get into the action of Alcoholic Anonymous. I wanted to get in the program instead of around the program. And this is what I did. You know, and not, uh, not too long after, I was uh, asked by the Chamber of Commerce, in which they had the population, it covers many towns, and they had about 35,000 people there. And they asked me if I would receive the, uh, the, uh, an award, they called it a Pioneer Award, for achievement to the community and my fellow man. It's something that I had done on my own. And I wasn't doing for any other purpose that this is what I wanted to do. And it was a recognition that they seen by other people talking. And it was through my own expenses. And they wanted to, to, they would have a banquet and I would be award, I would get this special award. And I said, no, I said, thank you very much because I was afraid that, I was, that they would say that I was a member of Alcoholic Anonymous. And he said, because it was going to be on radio, TV and film. Uh, and uh, newspaper and he said, then I, I talked to some of the people in the group and my sponsor they said why don't you accept the honor I did I said okay and uh, please be careful not to say that I'm a member of AA and I was telling them that, that everybody knows I'm an alcoholic anonymous where I live I'm in a little town where people uh, you know what kind of underwear they wear <laughs> even though those who are not wearing any <laughs> But he, the, the thing about it, that uh, the greatest thing that came out of this, this is what I want to say. They had asked me to say a few words. And right at the center table was my whole family. My wife and my boys, my grandkids. And when I looked at them and I wanted to say, I had tears just coming down my eyes. You see, I could have missed it all. I could have missed it all what this program had to offer. But by taking the proper action, it was the greatest moment, one of my greatest happiness moments that I ever had is when I saw my family right here in front of me from where I was and what I got to be and what's possible for me to, to become. It's not over with. It's not over with. God, we don't, we don't have a resume of what we do in Alcoholic Anonymous. I don't know, don't. 
I know Frank does it. I know any speaker has resumes. I do nothing. This is one of my paradoxes. I do nothing and things happen. I don't ask for any of these things to be invited anywhere. That's why I got to, I love Alcoholic Anonymous and I got to respect Alcoholic Anonymous. It's hard for me to say that I would love Alcoholic Anonymous and not respect Alcoholic Anonymous. Because I sure would like to change some things that I see. To show respect to this beautiful program that saved my life. You know, just like a big book. I love to read the big book. I have a reading machine at my house that magnifies the letter 60 times its size. And I can put it in front of me and it comes out on the screen. I feel that if, it's, if Alcoholic Anonymous, the first 164 pages, has saved my life, I feel it's my responsibility to see what in the hell am I in? And this is why I love AA and I respect AA. Like in 1962 when I wanted to retire. And I did. Because I wanted to do what really made me happy. Happy, joyous, and free. I wanted to be free to do what I could do in the marshland, which I've been there for 40 years. I've been in the marshland. Hunting and fishing and trapping. We, I used to trap these pretty animals for the beautiful furs for ugly people. And I, this is my lifestyle. I loved it. And I knew that I could do so much more of it if I would retire, and I did. Those first three years were the most wonderful three years of my life. I was free to do anything. I was like Emerald, Emerald on the TV, that, the cook on TV. Happy, 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 happy. You all know Emerald? He's the cook on TV. And I did this. And then all of a sudden, to, I had a, what I call a nice stroke. I have an incurable eye disease. And it's been there for, it started about 10 years ago. It progressively gets worse. I'm not going to go blind. I'll never lose sight of God in AA anyway. And I, I had to give up. It robbed me of all the things that I wanted to do. It took one piece at a time. One piece at a time. And you know, I had the audacity to say, thank you God, oh, thank you God. Like my friend in Hawaii says all the time. That I knew that this was a purpose. There was a purpose for all of this. Even when they stole my crop traps, <laughs> somebody came and stole all my crop traps. I, I was crabbing. I love to crab. And when I came that one morning, I come to a convention. I spoke some words. I went the Monday to my camp and looked at my crop traps. I had about 78 of them in the water. And they were more than half were gone. And instead of talking about his mother, whoever stole my crop traps, I said, maybe he needed it. Maybe he needed that for his family. I didn't have to do that for a living. Not that I'm justified stealing, understand? But sometimes we've got to do things. There's some things that we have to do sometimes. And this is what happened. This is how you change me. You changed me because of the principles of AA. And I don't know what time it is, and I want to shut up in a minute here. You can I find out what time it is? It's 11.30. 11.30. I started at 10.30? All right. So I got another hour. <laughs> now I'd like to close this up.
How do we close it up? I have a... My whole family is intact. And it has, I'm a family man. I love my family. I have two boys. One is in sober and alcoholic anonymous for eight years now. We had a gathering yesterday for Thanksgiving. And we were 22 of us of the family at this dining table. And it was a beautiful day. I'm not supposed to be grateful. Shame on me if I'm not grateful for what this program has given me. It's unbelievable. And what's what's coming? I I have a lot of... I I have the enthusiasm uh, that uh, because of the principles of AA especially honesty and uh, encouragement, hope, faith, love, love and service, the ever-present of God, humility. And these are all the principles of AA. I'm working on one right now. I'm looking at them. uh, There's one of them that I'm working on because I was guilty of it so much. And it's what I hear in AA. And the people that I sponsor, I try to tell them that this is not a character assassination program. I said, there's, don't, let's try not to criticize our, our members. Let's get rid of all this vicious gossip. I'm not telling you to do it. I'm asking the sponsor, the people that I sponsor, to be aware of it. Because when I come to the defense of another person, when I hear him, uh, a member of Alcoholic Anonymous that being turned, torn by a member that doesn't know anything about this person. I come to that defense. And once you come to the defense of another person, you're open for criticism. You are open for criticism. They will criticize you when you leave. Well, this is one thing that I'm working on. Because I was guilty of that. I'm trying to get away from that. I'm trying to work these principles of AA which also the 12 steps of AA is the principles of AA. I brought you a gift. It's not a big gift. It's a prayer card. It has nothing to do with Alcoholic Anonymous. It has nothing to do with that. It's a, there's no name, address, or phone number on this card. It's a, prayer, it's a prayer that Thomas Merton wrote. I found it from a... It was given to me by a, a speaker in Texas. And I changed some of the words in it. I didn't know that Thomas Merton had written, written the prayer. I didn't know who Thomas Merton was at that time. The reason I changed some of the words in the prayer, like you're going to see if you take a card to give to your bookmark, give it to your friend... Or, for your personal use, or don't take none at all, it doesn't matter. If ever you feel like you're like a ship without a rudder, I have that in there because of the work that I did. My work that I did, I worked for a tugboat company, purchasing agent. The most beautiful job a person can have is when he's in charge of a multi-million dollar department of purchasing especially if you're a practicing alcoholic. You get plenty, plenty gifts. Or else, I don't buy with you. That's the way it was. But this prayer, I, you know, I don't know that uh, Thomas Merton had any uh, 
any monopoly on prayers, you know. In fact, it says, uh, we have no monopoly on God. Page 95. <laughs> and I think it's a prayer that if you have a decision to make, maybe you'd like to read the prayer before you make a decision. Where I'm standing here, to my left and my right, my wife will put these cards there, and feel free to take one. On one side of the card is the prayer, and the other side says, there's a guy standing on the beach. I, 35 miles from where I live is Grand Island. This is the last place you can go in Louisiana on LA1. LA1 starts there or ends there. Either one. And then you gotta go by boat or helicopter. And he's, I put him on the beach and he's looking at the vast ocean and the beautiful sky. And he has his hands in his pocket. And whatever you're gonna see is what you're gonna see in this guy. It might be a moment of gratitude. You know, we can't be hateful and grateful at the same time. It's one thing we cannot do. And now Marlon used to say about the, to maintain an attitude of gratitude. And he, this guy on the, on the beach says, Thank you God for all you have given me. Thank you God for all you have taken away. And thank you God for all you have left me. And I think that the greatest thing that God has ever left me is what we read in that first edition where it says, We of Alcoholic Anonymous have recovered from a seamless, hopeless state of mind and body. What a gift. Thank you very much.